Hello, I'm Jason Kelly, and this is the Practicing History Podcast. Practicing History is a podcast about the way we construct our pasts, not just how professionals do it, but how all of us every day tell stories, speak, think, and reflect historically. Through doing this, we're all historians. For those of you who listened to the last episode, you'll know that we've just started a new series in the Practicing History podcast, and this series is focused on outbreaks and plagues through history. Obviously, there is a current moment of pandemic that's driving this interest, and it's driving the interest of a lot of historians and writers about how people have responded to outbreaks in the past. And there's good reason for this because it tells us a lot about our societies and about how people think and reflect about their pasts, how they imagine their futures, and it even gives them a moment to reflect on the status quo and even critique the status quo. So plagues and outbreaks can be an important way of thinking about the past that helps us better understand how people practice history. Today, we're going to focus on one moment, or perhaps we can think of it as a series of moments of an outbreak that took place roughly in the late second century. And this is a a plague that is often called the Antonine Plague. And this took place between 165 and 180 CE. It's, It's a series of outbreaks. Sometimes it's referred to as the Plague of Galen, who was a famous physician in second century Rome. And as you can probably imagine, when we're talking about the Antonines, we're talking about ancient Rome. And so for today, I've invited one of my colleagues, Liz Thill, who's an assistant professor of classical studies at IUPUI, to be a guest on the show and tell us a little bit about the history and the context of the Antonine Plague and what it tells us about second century Rome. So the podcast you're going to hear today is that interview. It's a little longer than our typical podcasts, and that's because it is an interview, and there's a lot of very interesting topics that we cover over the course of the interview. And I'm hoping to do more of these interviews as practicing history moves forward. I apologize for the sound. Uh, the as, as many of us are stuck at home with the recording devices that we have available to us, the sound is a little rougher than it usually is. I'm going to see if I can't work on that as I get more people involved in interviews on the Practicing History podcast, but frankly, it's not that bad. Uh, It sounds a little compressed because it's been done over video conference. So anyway, I'm going to leave you with that, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm here with Liz Thill, who is an assistant professor of classical studies at IEPY. How are you doing, Liz? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming. So, uh, you know, our audience is interested in lots of the different ways that folks have done history in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's really great to have somebody who works in the classical world. Uh, you're actually our first uh, published interview. We've done okay. several interviews that are, are in the library, but they haven't been published yet. So you're the first person. Oh, well, I'm honored. 
So uh, can you just uh, tell uh, the audience a little bit about what you do? Um, I am a uh, classical archaeologist by training. My PhD is in classical archaeology, but I actually work uh, with large-scale artistic monuments in the capital of Rome. So I don't go out in the field and dig like our, uh, Indiana Jones anymore. Um, but what I am mostly interested in is how the Roman Empire um, produced these large visual monuments that were meant to influence how people thought about various things, how they thought about their leaders, how they thought about their history, how they thought about themselves. Um, and I'm very interested in how visual culture worked. Um, I think this is one of the very interesting parallels between the Roman world and the modern world, that both cultures are constantly bombarded by imagery. Uh, imagery that is purposeful, imagery that is calculated, and it really affects how we see our world. You have a sense, like in the modern day, when we get bombarded with these images, we interpret and transform those images uh, when we receive them and then, yes. uh, you know, use them ourselves. And I'm just wondering, is this something we see similar in the classical world as well? Oh, yes. Um, we don't have nearly as many um, mentions of this as a process um, that they specifically say like, oh my God, I have so much visual culture coming at me all the time. Um, but we do see them making very conscious choices. Uh, and that's what I'm really interested in, in how they depict things um, and where they put them uh, and how, what messages these visual things say. Um, we do, we have a lot of elite references to decorating houses. Uh, and talking about where things should be positioned and what's appropriate to include in your house, what message are you sending uh, to other elites. Um, we have vague descriptions of people seeing other things in the cities. You kind of have to mine the data, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely there. Do you engage with any of the graffiti and things that we see in the classical world? Um, <laughs> I have very good friends who do. Um, graffiti in Pompeii is primarily the, the main source in Pompeii and Herculaneum. Uh, there's a very interesting project going on that you can get online and look at, which I believe is called the Pompeii and Herculaneum Graffiti Project. Please forgive me for not remembering the name exactly. Um, well, we'll, we'll put it in the description. We'll put, a we'll link put it in the description. description. Okay. Um, and so they're going through and documenting all of the graffiti and really looking into where it is positioned, um, what other graffiti it's next to, uh, how is it made, what sort of um, technique are they using, what sort of handwriting are they using. Uh, and that's been very interesting in sort of contextualizing uh, what we're seeing. Um, if you had, if I had to write a paper on graffiti, I would be interested in the fact that they don't depict houses. They don't there's no depictions of architecture in Pompeii graffiti, uh, which is very interesting given how common it is in Roman art in general, uh, mass produced or professionally produced art. Um, and that's my, that's my main area of um, interest or focus is on depictions of architecture. So can you tell us a little bit about things you've discovered in uh, studying depictions of architecture? 
Oh, sure. Um, I wish more people would ask me that. Um, so my dissertation that I focused, what I focused on in my dissertation and what I'm turning into a book um, is on how architecture is used in what I call monumental reliefs, these large scale over life size sculptures that are set up probably by the Senate in Rome uh, to commemorate various things, um, wars, acts of the emperor. Um, these are the arches, these are the columns that you may have seen um, either in views of Rome or just, you know, HBO's Rome, Cleopatra of Rome. Um, and what's interesting is that there are definite patterns. Um, most people or most scholars have looked at these depictions of buildings and tried to see like which particular building is it, trying to use it to recreate uh, a historical building. Um, but what I have found is that most of them are actually generic buildings. They are meant to present a view of Rome as specifically urban, as specifically wealthy, diverse, beautiful. Uh, and the flip side of this is what you see is that in depictions of enemy architecture, what the Romans would call barbarian architecture, uh, those architecture is used there to present the enemy as inferior. Um, there's a lot of huts, uh, there's a lot of things on fire. Um, and this is used not in any sort of documentary process, um, but as sort of a larger theme of the general superiority of Rome. Uh, and what I find particularly interesting is that these things start appearing at about the same time that the Senate loses control of building, building actual structures. Um, so as Augustus and his family, the Julio-Claudian dynasty, uh, consolidate who gets to build uh, official public monuments, um, you see an increasing use of pictures of monuments in senatorial reliefs. Um, and I think that this is, represents the Senate still trying to hold on to this identity of architecture. Like they're the ones that do the architecture. They're the ones that make Rome who, what is Rome um, when they can't actually be building the structures anymore. Yeah, and so when we look at Rome, the archaeology of Rome versus the visual representation right. of Rome, what's the di what's the difference that we see? Um, well, what's interesting is that um, what I like about depictions of architecture is you can make a building look like anything, right? Like you don't have to have a particular roof that needs to be held up <laughs> because it's not going to fall; it's fake. Um, the Romans really focus on details of uh, architectural details in their depictions. Um, lots of fancy columns, lots of molding, which on the one hand you see in the architectural record, sorry, the archaeological record, um, but for instance, uh, almost everything has Corinthian columns in depictions of Roman architecture, um, including buildings like shops that would not have had you know, this value of, or not, could not afford actual Corinthian columns. And can you explain Corinthian columns? Oh, sorry. Um, certainly, there are three different main types of columns. Um, they, there's a Doric column, which is the simplest. It's associated with uh, mainland Greece, and it basically looks like a pillow with a block on top, <laughs> and that's it, and it's very sturdy and very serious. Uh, and then there's the Ionic column, which is associated with um, the Greek-speaking people that lived um, on the coast of what we call Turkey today. Uh, and that's more frilly. Uh, that was sort of the fancy Greek version. And then there is the Corinthian column, which kind of looks like a bouquet of flowers 
um, on top of the column. And the Romans liked that a lot. Uh, the Greeks thought this was very tacky. Um, this was this was a big no-no to the Greeks to put uh, Corinthian columns on the outside. Romans never saw an architectural decoration that they didn't think should be bigger and there should be more of it. Um, so the Romans put Corinthian columns on everything. Um, so that's something that becomes very associated culturally with Rome itself. And you see that reflected in architectural depictions. Um, there's a big difference in what building types you see. So Romans build baths everywhere. They love their baths. Um, I cannot think of a single uncontested depiction of a bath in Roman architect in Roman art. Um, and there are tens of thousands of depictions. I'm not claiming, of course, that I've seen all of these, but it just doesn't really occur, uh, which is interesting. Um, there's tons of temples, lots of things that look like temples. Um, if you were to look at Roman art, you would think that Rome was primarily colonnades and temples, um, which is interesting that that's what they're putting in their foreground. Um, there's a lot of depictions of entertainment venues, uh, theaters, amphitheaters. Um, there are not many depictions of houses, which again, presumably most people used houses more than they used amphitheaters. And would um, these have been constructed of stone or wood? Oh, interesting question. Um, in monumental reliefs, almost all buildings associated with Rome are clearly made of stone, even when that makes no sense. So um, famously on the Column of Trajan, which is a monument set up in the heart of Rome, it's 100 Roman feet tall, so that makes us it really tall. Um, <laughs> and um, there are a lot of construction scenes that show the Roman army constructing forts in the field. And the choice the artist made, or somebody made them, somebody made the choice, we have no idea who made the choice, but somebody made the choice to have the forts look as if they're constructed out of stone. Which if you follow this logically would mean that the Roman army is stopping every single night and building a fort out of cut stone masonry. Which they didn't do, that's, that's just not true. Um, and so you see uh, this importance of, of course is that the Roman army is permanent, the Roman army is strong, the Roman army is sophisticated, they are here to stay. Um, the Roman artists don't tend to be concerned with logic mm -hmm. on how these, uh, how these buildings look or how um, they're put up or whether they would actually be stone. Um, but it runs the other way. Um, in the, on the column of Trajan, Dacian architecture, the architecture of the enemy, is shown as stone in some places uh, where it is advantageous for it to be stone for the Romans, like when they're capturing something nice or when they're fighting a hard battle and you have to show why, you know, it took them so long to get inside of a fort. Um, but most of the Dacian architecture is shown as uh, wood. Um, even when that doesn't really make sense for it to be wood. Um, they're making their choice of construction material and they're being very specific about it and they are basing it on ideology rather than logistics. Mm -hmm. Now, bringing up the army, that, that is a nice transition to what we're here to talk about, which is the Antonine Plague, yes. uh, which is, I guess, more like a series of uh, outbreaks uh, yeah. in the late second century CE. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit, a bit about the Antonine Plague. Uh, sure. Um, so the Antonine Plague hit during the reign of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, who is best known as, I believe, Richard Harris in the movie Gladiator. Um, and 
<laughs> best known to everyone. Um, there were definitely a series of plagues that seemed to have come from the north, that seemed to have spread through the army into the heart of the Italian peninsula. At the same time as this was happening, uh, the Roman army was experiencing a series of setbacks uh, to the point that uh, some barbarian tribes, barbarians as the Romans construed them, uh, probably from Germania, from the German area of Germany or Austria, um, crossed down into the Italian peninsula. They made it as far as the Po River, uh, which is about around where Venice is today. And this was very unsettling for the Romans. It was very big for them that the Italian peninsula had been penetrated by barbarian enemy. This hadn't happened for hundreds of years. Um, they were very, con uh, very conscious of the fact that like their homeland, that this was coming towards Rome. Um, now, the, um, because of this, the army was moving around a lot. Um, there were also um, civil wars in Syria as well, or this general area of Syria. Uh, and so because of this, the plague seems to have spread very quickly. Um, there was a very little social distancing. Um, and in the ancient world, when the plague hit, you know, no one, there was no testing. No one was like, oh, okay, here's what's going on. Um, so the Romans seem to have conceptualized this as just the world nearly ending. Um, so there's these barbarian invaders, there's the army is getting sick, the army is dying, um, they're having trouble staffing the army, um, and there's this mysterious death that is just moving from one person to the other. So in some ways, our last last week on the podcast, we talked about the outbreak of plague in Athens uh, during the Peloponnesian right. War. Mm -hmm. So there's some similarities here where right. armies are helping to move uh, disease over over distances. Right. And uh, sometimes armies actively move di disease. Um, I don't know if you how much you covered that in the last podcast, but um, ancient people weren't stupid. Uh, they may not have had a sophisticated germ theory, but they did understand that if you hung around people who died of the plague, you died of the plague. Um, and so there are examples from the ancient world, from the medieval world of um, armies actively weaponizing the plague, uh, where they would take the dead bodies of soldiers who had died from the plague and fling them over the walls into enemy territory, into enemy settlements, um, to purposely try to infect people as well. So the, the, there is a very close conception between the army and plague, or what the ancients conceived of as basically spreadable death. So you bring up actually an interesting point. Today we understand disease to move through, through germs. Uh, right. This is a, an idea that developed in the 19th century called germ theory. Mm -hmm. has been super important, saving millions and millions <laughs> of lives around the globe. Back in this period, the, this late second century CE, how would the typical Roman have described the outbreak? What, what would have caused it as, as they understood it? So trying to answer this question, honestly, I mean, honestly, we don't know um, because we don't have the minds of the typical Roman available to us. We have the elite males' views written down. Um, what the typical Roman would have experienced is Romans culturally understood the importance of hygiene. Um, they understood that if you bathed more, 
that you got sick less. Um, this is why um, they have certain things in place like the bath system. Um, they also, are, Romans are hyper-focused on sewers. They actually have a goddess to the sewer, uh, Venus Cloacina, um, the goddess of sex and sewers. Um, <laughs> Romans have a god of everything. And the Romans are very proud of their sewer system. They talk about it a, a surprising amount. Um, and they, uh, part of the importance of having the water that they would bring in in the aqueducts to your average Roman town was you can't turn off an aqueduct. So it overflows in the fountains and it washes the streets. Um, so the Romans do have a broad idea of contagion uh, and the importance of hygiene. They also understand the importance of keeping dead people away from them. Um, so the Romans have a concept of, that has come down to us as the pomerium, which is basically a magic sacred line around a city. Um, it's not something you can see, uh, but you could not bury someone inside of the pomerium. Now, the way that this is sort of conceptualized is it will make the gods angry, but it's also a great way to prevent cholera. <laughs> so uh, uh, this may be sort of a social justification for a phenomenon that they saw, which is if you bury people next to your water sources, everybody dies. But in terms of what had actually happened, sort of a plague is just all of the sudden people would start dying. And you would hear about it. Uh, the Romans have um, a very sophisticated system of roads. There's a lot of traveling between towns. You would hear that it was coming. You would hear that it was coming from the north. And then just suddenly people around you would start dying. Um, and you would not know exactly how to contain this. Um, your understanding of how the human body works is probably pretty rough. Uh, probably ideas of like, um, fluids in the body, maintaining balances of various humors, um, dry versus wet. Um, there's not much you can do. There's probably herbs you can take. Um, but when it really gets going, and then it'll just stop. That's another thing that we don't, I think we don't think about a lot of times is the plague just goes away. They don't do social distancing and then develop a vaccine. It just stops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why somebody lives and somebody dies, they have no idea. Now you talked about humors. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this is the age of Galen, uh, the ancient yes. physician as yes. well, who, who lives through this plague. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about Galen and uh, the importance of Galen, uh, even for the modern world? So uh, I can't speak extensively to this. I've, I've hoped that you'll bring my friend Karen Carducci on at some point and she can cover this in more detail. But um, this is an era where people are writing a lot of treatises in general. Uh, it's a big age of encyclopedias, of putting down the knowledge of the world. Um, and Galen was a physician who uh, wrote a, a very important work on basically how medicine works. Um, and this was extremely influential and basically set the tone for medicine for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Uh, he became the medical authority. He's heavily copied in the Middle Ages. He's heavily, he spreads throughout Europe. He spreads, I believe, into the uh, Arabic speaking world as well. Um, and what is sort of interesting is Galen is not correct on a lot of things, but everyone's like, okay, we're done. Like this is, this is good. <laughs> um, he's influenced heavily by an author named Serranus, an earlier 
slightly earlier off uh, working in the Trajanic period. Um, and there's definitely this idea of authority. Um, and so both Galen and Serranus spend a lot of time quoting different authors and saying, this person says this, but I believe this. This person says this, and I believe that. And um, it definitely shows an idea or a concept of knowledge as something that one person can sort of acquire, that one person can judge amongst, and then one person can disseminate. And so you're not getting a lot of discussion as to how any of this works, at least as we're seeing it in, the late, in later periods. And these folks during the period are not doing things like dissection uh, and study of the body in the same way? They're doing some. Um, they are coming to very odd conclusions. Um, for instance, Seranus was a gynecologist. He, his most famous work is his gynecological text. He talks about a lot of other things, but uh, I've read him primarily through the gynecological view. Um, and so, for instance, uh, Seranus talks extensively about whether or not the uterus is a parasitic animal that, wa that is like taking over women's bodies. Uh, and he concludes that it is not a parasitic animal because pigs have one too. And so his idea is that the same parasitic animal cannot live in a pig and a human. Um, and he mentions things like vague dissections to sort of support this theory. Um, but on the other hand, like the uterus is not a parasitic animal. So, like, if they're doing a lot of dissections, you think they would have, like, come to that conclusion. <laughs> um, another thing that he discusses is uh, whether the ovaries are attached to the kidneys or the uterus. Um, and again, they're always attached to the uterus. That's what they do. So if you're doing extensive dissections, you're going to figure that out pretty quick. Um, they're not doing a ton of work, particularly on the female body. Um, and there is also a lot of different conceptions as to how the body versus the soul works. Um, it's, it's more complicated than we think of as a scientific process in like an anatomy class. You get a, you get a body, you cut it open and you see how it works. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more of like a discovering a lost civilization approach of like you're entering an unknown country and what will you happen to find in this one? Maybe a uterus, who knows? <laughs> so, um, now the Antonine Plague, uh, mm -hmm. this didn't just affect the Roman Empire, correct? No, no. Um, I mean, it, it spread really, really widely and very, very quickly. Um, and then it seems to have stopped pretty quickly as well. Um, I'm a little out of my depth here, but I believe the latest scientific evidence, like the bioarchaeology, suggests that it was the bubonic plague or um, a version of the bubonic plague. They found mass, a few mass graves and have been able to extract um, some DNA from that, as I understand, um, which is, I am not a doctor. Let me, well, I'm a doctor of classical archaeology, which is not useful. Um, the uh, Kirstina Kilgrove has a lot of interesting uh, work on this as well. And she has um, a lot of social media available as well. Um, so yeah, it, it spread very widely. One thing that we don't know much about is how it would have affected the Germanic people um, who were coming in contact with the Romans, um, how it would have spread beyond the Roman Empire to areas that don't have as well-developed a textual uh, tradition as the Romans did.
And we do have a sense that this probably traveled as far east as China and India as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, and also logically, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, the Romans had, there were extensive trade where, networks running all the way up to Norway, um, to Britain, to China, to India. I mean, the world was way more interconnected than I think we appreciate as moderns. We tend to think that this, this global world is just something that we have. Um, you know, there were regular trade routes running from China to India and to Rome all the time and had been there for hundreds of years. Uh, so there's no reason to think that this wouldn't have spread, not quite as quickly as it would, could today with airplanes, but, and also there's nothing to stop it. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's you, important, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, there's no ideas of like national borders or border checks or like something like that where you could like shut down a border. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the, the effects of this long distance trade and the regular trade mm -hmm. then is when a plague comes along and lasts for, you know, it's a short plague in the grand scheme of things, perhaps, but it's something these outbreaks last for about 15 years or so. Right, right. And it just, it moves around. It moves around. And so what are the effects then on the broader economy? And you, you already talked a little bit about the Romans being concerned about their, 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 the strength of their empire and, and mm -hmm. a little bit of contraction of the empire. And now we have this major plague affecting uh, large scale economic networks as well. Right. Um, there, if I'm remembering correctly, there is quite a bit of evidence of a peak of hoarding in this period. So hoarding is, um, there aren't banks in the ancient world. That's not a thing. Um, so if you have silver and you want to protect it, which is like all of your life savings is in hard currency, right? Like you don't have a bank account, um, you bury it. Um, and if you die, you don't go back to it. And so what, one way to check um, for widespread disruptive events is to look at the patterns of coin hoarding. Um, are more people dying before they can go back and get these hoards? Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, there is quite a significant spike in the late second century uh, in terms of the corn hordes that we can recover. Um, another line of evidence uh, for the economy uh, in the second century is uh, ancient sources, multiple ancient sources mention that Marcus Aurelius sold off at public auction the furnishings for his palace. So of the, it would be basically if uh, Trump auctioned off the furnishings of the White House um, to pay for the army and to pay for uh, social relief. Um, there isn't very much evidence of major building projects during the Antonine era in Rome. Um, so Trajan is building these huge forums, Augustus is building all of these temples, and we don't see that sort of building activity in Antonine Rome. Um, I personally am skeptical of reading too much into that, however, um, because one of the things that my work focuses on, and which I think we need to sort of explore conceptually more, is that building main large architectural projects was only one way, was a choice in the way that emperors interacted with the populace. Um, so it could be that what we see under the Antonines is a shift away from large scale public architecture, not necessarily because they can't afford it, but because they're, they're using different means of connecting with the people. It may be that it, it looked bad, like even if they could afford to build a big, you know, forum that people would be saying, you know, well, why are you doing this when we're starving? Or why are you doing this with a plague? Or uh, supply chains could have broken down. We're not quite sure how to interpret that evidence. So do we have a sense of the scale of deaths in ancient Rome? 
Um, life expectancy and death scales are really hard to put precise numbers on. Um, the number I've heard for the Antonine Plague is possibly one in four dying. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. But we also have to remember that the people died suddenly all the time in the ancient world. A plague was particularly terrifying because more people died. Um, but as a comparison, uh, one in four is also the um, proposed death rate for women in childbirth, for first time mothers in childbirth. So if you're a woman in the ancient world, your average woman, you already have a chance of dying in childbirth that is one in four. Um, life expectancy is, is very hard to calculate for the ancient world as well um, because it varies hugely. Uh, first of all, if you get out of infancy, then it spikes up. If you get past the age of five, then it spikes up. And then it's very random who dies. You know, like people just, you know, they break their bone, it gets infected and they die. Um, they, uh, you know, stumble off of a, a cart, the cart breaks and they die. Um, so you could live to be 70, you can live to be 30, and that's really hard to calculate. Yeah. Now, but one in four deaths, 25% of a population a dying off is a huge <laughs> yeah. number. Uh, and this is going to yes. have a pretty <laughs> profound effect on the economy. If we look at the uh, bubonic plague of uh, the Middle Ages, for example, right. this completely transforms the European economy in the right, wake yes. of this. Yes. So do we have a sense of the longer term impacts on the Roman Empire? Um, tricky question, um, because in you could look at it and say, in general, the Roman, the Roman Empire never recovers. Um, so there are high spots um, after the Antonine Dynasty um, is killed off under Commodus, the Septimius Severus comes to power. And, you know, things actually look pretty good for a while. But then in the third century, there's a lot of political chaos, at least. Um, where there's a series of, oh, it depends how you count, but, you know, like 150 emperors. I mean, every, everyone and their cousin is declaring themselves emperor at that point. Um, but it's very hard to think about how this would have impacted the everyday person. Um, because to some extent, the Roman Empire never went away. It just transformed itself into various different manifestations through World War I at the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Um, it's an interesting question to ask. If you're a farmer in Gabi, does it really matter to you how the broader economy of Rome is doing or who's emperor? Um, the, the practice of everyday life continues pretty much the same for a long time after the Antonine Plague. Um, and I think again, and I'm speculating entirely here. Um, one thing to consider is that although the plague hit everyone very quickly and very hard, this phenomenon of sudden massive death in the ancient world is something they deal with a lot. Not a lot to that scale, but again, the idea that one in four women could die in childbirth, that affects how you live your life anyway. Well, this brings us to an interesting point. So how do you explain this? You know, we, we've talked about a lot of things, but we have not talked about religion yet. Oh, yes. The religion aspect is very interesting. Um, so the we have ancient sources who 
attribute the stop of the plague and the stop of, of various miracles that happen um, under Marcus Aurelius to various religions, um, to Egyptian, to the gods, uh, like the Roman gods, to even Christianity. Um, and that, one of the things that does happen under the plague and under the wars, which are also happening, um, is that Marcus Aurelius starts a series of um, religious measures uh, where um, there are decrees that go out, um, I think I'm getting this right, decrees that go out that everyone has to sacrifice to the gods, um, which leads to a problem for Christians because Christians can't morally sacrifice to the Roman gods. Uh, and so what you see is also what the Christian writers conceive of as a series of persecutions against them uh, by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, did Marcus Aurelius probably say specifically, like, I want the Christians killed? Almost certainly not. Um, it's not clear that he would have even necessarily know much at all about Christians. The Roman world was full of various cults. Um, but the Christians were interesting because of the way Christianity is conceived of as a religion, you can't sacrifice, you can't make sacrifices to a God that is not the true God. Um, Romans have an interactive or a, a procedural based religion system. So basically you can believe whatever you want personally in your heart, uh, as long as you perform the correct sacrifices, because what the gods want is not faith, but sacrifices. They want actions, obey, they want obedience. Um, and so what you see is kind of a religious panic going on in the second century where they are trying to make sure that everyone, the civic motion is basically, is everyone sacrificing to the gods, um, which is kind of a version of, kind of akin to the social distancing that we're seeing here, where everyone is sort of pleading to, for people to do the right thing. Uh, everyone needs to pull together to do the right thing. Uh, you see this in the second century with um, everyone is supposed to be sacrificing correctly to the gods. They're all supposed to be doing the right thing. Um, and the Christians in the eyes of the Romans are not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, we, you talked about persecutions. So what does this look like for uh, the Christians, uh, let's say in, in Rome itself? Um, well, it's interesting because the, um, the people who talk about this the most are Christian writers um, who see this as a period of um, martyrdom. And on the one hand, they see the plague as sort of a sign from God, um, but it's also um, something that the Christians can actively help against uh, as well. So um, there's a, a famous incident in the war in Germania where um, there's a miracle. The Romans are, are surrounded. It's hot. They're somehow exposed. They can't get water. Uh, and then it miraculously rains on them and they're able to drink the water and fight their way out. Uh, and you see this as attributed both to Egyptian particularly Egyptian, uh, uh, an Egyptian priest that Marcus Aurelius has with him. Uh, but you also see this attributed to Christians, that there was a Christian unit in the um, army that had this, that had this done. Um, what, how the Christians portray it as this is some sort of extra evil that is happening, that this is, this is all of you, how the world is evil and there's this plague and there's these wars and now they're taking it out on the Christians uh, who know what's going on. They, they know that this is, you know, this world is temporal. This world is, is not the main, the main shtick. Um, in reality, what seems to have happened with Christian persecutions is, um, 
know, the Romans would order, you know, at some sort of level, like everyone in the town is going to sacrifice. Everyone in the town is going to get together and they're going to sacrifice. Um, and the Christians would come, be brought forward, and the Christians would say, I'm not performing the sacrifices. Um, and the Roman authority would say, why not? And the Romans, uh, the Christians would say, because I believe in the one true God. And the Roman authorities would say, I have no idea why that matters. Like, what, what you, I didn't ask about what you believed. I want you to throw the rice on the ground and say, the grain on the ground and say, all praise to Jupiter. And the Christians are like, I don't believe in Jupiter. And the Romans again are like, okay, no, nobody asked you. Like, seriously, nobody asked you. Here's the grain, throw it on the ground. Here's the script. And the Christians would say, I'd rather die. And to the Romans, this is a bizarre behavior, right? Because everyone's like, seriously, I want you to throw some grain on the ground or I'm going to kill you. And you're just, you're, you're opting for killing? Because I will kill you. I'm a Roman. I will kill anyone. <laughs> um, and so you see this sort of discrepancy in martyrdom accounts um, but of like the Romans they're not out to get the Christians in particular. They're just really baffled by this refusal, um, which for them seems, you know, it just doesn't make any sense because they don't, they see it as a performative act and the Christians see it as some sort of act of faith. And basically the two sides don't mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when a plague breaks out, uh, you know, the Christians have this uh, ideal of, of charity and, and caring for others. And uh, so when a plague breaks out, do yeah. the Christians respond in ways differently than let's say some of the other Roman uh, folks who believed in, in different religious systems? I don't believe we have any evidence for this for the second century plague in particular. Um, but what we do have evidence for, um, and my friend Sarah Bond, uh, who also does a lot of social media work, uh, her research is on this, is how Christians take care of the dead. Uh, Romans don't, they're, they're taking care of the dead is very a family-based affair. It reflects your family, whether or not you can afford to give them a proper burial. Um, and if you can't, if you're poor, then you there is really no point in doing anything with that body and it just kind of like ends up on the streets. Um, and one thing that the Romans definitely notice about Christians is that Christians start setting up these networks where they will bury total strangers, plague victims, paupers, just people that they are literally finding dead on the streets. Um, and that starts to win a lot of, a lot of hearts and minds in the Roman community um, because it was expensive to bury somebody. Um, and if you don't bury that person, um, according to the common religious view, uh, that person suffers for the all of eternity. They wander around as a lost soul. Um, so that's sad, basically. Uh, and But there wasn't an ethos or a, a mindset that you would do this for a stranger. They actually have... Um, <laughs> burial clubs in the ancient world, which is something like a life insurance policy mixed with an Elks Lodge. Um, yeah, they, where, ha they have this in the period I study too during the 18th yeah, century. Yeah. Yeah. Where basically you put in money um, while you're alive, you pay your dues. And the idea is that they will then bury you from the common pot when you die. And you will get buried in like a little club mausoleum um and some of them have features that they'll also like give a small stipend to your family afterwards um but what we also see is this is like a huge social networking thing that they do so they have like um dining clubs basically in 
the burial grounds <laughs> and you, people identify themselves as belonging to various burial clubs. Um, so imagine if you belong to a country club, but they also buried you. So we're coming, uh, we're coming to uh, an end of our time, but I wanted to ask you one last question and, mm -hmm. and you've touched on it a couple times, but I just want to address it directly, which is the concept of the afterlife. So living through this plague, clearly the issue of the afterlife is on at least many of the people's minds yes. as, as they're living through this, this moment when even more people than usual are just dying. Uh, yes. And so, you know, Christianity is, is one of these cults during the, the second century right. that that's, that's competing for, for people's uh, attention. Right. Um, how are people thinking about the afterlife at this time? Well, one of the appeal, most appealing features of Christianity at this time is that it has a positive view of the afterlife. Um, the afterlife in Roman and Greek culture, generally speaking, um, is terrible. Uh, it is some sort of land of shadows that you go down to, and it's unclear exactly what happens there, but basically you just walk around suffering. And, and this um, is and what's described in Virgil. Yeah, so I Virgil actually has one of the more positive visions of the afterlife mm -hmm. in that in Virgil, there are places that you get to go to if you are a hero. Most versions of the afterlife are just everybody's down there. It doesn't matter if you're good or you're bad or you save kittens or you don't save kittens. You just walk around slowly suffering. Um, Ovid presents a version of the afterlife. Uh, Ovid is vaguely contemporary with Virgil, where people just pointlessly do what they did in life. So if you made barrels during your life, you made barrels for all of eternity to no point. Barrels that did nothing. Um, it was extremely dark. Um, and even if you do have a concept of like, there's a special place in the afterlife that heroes get to go to, the ancient conception of a hero is somebody like Hercules or Theseus, uh, somebody who can do phenomenal great deeds. It's not something that you or me can achieve, um, partially because we don't have the physical capabilities and also because we're not royalty, we're not uh, elite. So it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa and you know Jacques Cousteau and uh, the Care Bears combined, uh, you're not getting into a good part of the afterlife. Um, so Christianity comes to, in this period of death and uncertainty, comes forward with this idea that there is a heaven um, that you can get into it, anybody can get into it, poor people, uh, women, that you can get into it and that God loves you knows you and wants to help you get to this afterlife that's really appealing uh in when your alternative your mainstream alternative is throw some grain on the ground to a god that doesn't care about you and hope that you don't die of whatever this is so you can make barrels for all eternity so you make barrels of all eternity <laughs> right well, this is this is this is great, Liz. Thank thanks so much uh, for taking the All time right. to talk to us about the Antonine Plague. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk about something again in the future. All right, I do know things that are not just people dying in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Practicing History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Liz Thill of the IUPUI Classical Studies Program. Next time we meet, uh, we will be talking, uh, continuing our conversations about plagues and outbreaks and pandemics throughout history. 
I hope you will go online to iTunes and like us. That helps us get the information in front of more and more people. And if you'd like to visit my website, that is jasonmkelly.com. That's Kelly without an E, K-E-L-L-Y. Or you can visit me on Twitter at Jason underscore M underscore Kelly. Until next time, please stay healthy and take care of each other.